Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. One thing we don't talk about much in the My Millennial Money world is commercial property. Have you ever wanted to buy an office block? Have you ever wanted to buy a fish and chip shop? Not the business, but the shop. Have you ever wanted to buy a medical center? Have you thought about diversifying? Well, did you know you've already got some commercial property and you might not know it? In your superannuation, you'd likely have exposure to commercial property. But today we're talking with Scott O'Neill. He's a commercial property expert. He's got a book, Rethink Property Investing. And Scott hosts a podcast, Inside Commercial Property. Now, John Pigeon... Welcome back to the podcast. My pleasure. And Scott, welcome to My Millennial Money. Thanks for having me, guys. Now, thank you to our show partner, Global X, formerly ETF Securities. So every Thursday, you'll hear a little bit about Global X. They'll be here to educate you, inspire you. We'll learn from them. And more importantly, I want to personally thank Global X for getting behind financial literacy in Australia, investing education, and really stepping up to the plate to spread the word about good money management. GlobalX, they provide a whole heap of different ETFs. You can buy them wherever you uh, buy your shares in Australia. You can head to globalxetfs.com.au to find out more about our new show partner. Thanks, GlobalX. All right, you guys ready to uh, pluck this chicken? Let's do it. All right. Radio. Well, as I said, we don't talk about commercial property all that much. So I thought I'd get Scott on. Scott and I use the same publisher, Wiley, for our books. And I thought it might just be a, a good way to set the scene, Scott, with a bit of your background, history, uh, your tax file number, all the good stuff, pin codes, and just kind of get us to where we're at now, maybe in your life and career, and you know what got you down this commercial property route. Yeah, so it all started... Um I guess a few years ago, I was uh, an engineer in Sydney, so born and raised in Sydney, and I did uh, the standard residential investing route like everyone. Uh, I bought about 5Ks away from where I live. That was the first investment, and it was, uh, yeah, it was sort of the start of where it all began, and it had a granny flat on it, so I was kind of exposed to a little bit of that positive cash flow, I guess, um, strategy almost by accident, and, you know, I nearly bought a, a unit of the same value, and it was amazing looking back at it about 10 years later, the difference in value in that same unit and and also the difference in cash flow compared to buying the house with the granny flat. So that one decision really kind of leapfrogged me in the right direction and um, and that sort of allowed us to kind of refinance a couple of years later, buy another one. And um, this is all at the same time I was working full-time building railways and I then moved into an area called Port Macquarie and that that was sort of in, again, just chasing the career thing. And it was, uh, yeah, on the side while I was working really hard and doing lots of hours, I was also uh, an obsessive property investor. And this meant I was kind of doing a lot of the, you know, the manual labour myself. Uh, You know, I had to go up building a kitchen, sanding numerous floors, painting houses until I almost didn't have any weekends left. And uh, I was even self-managing properties too because it was all about the cash flow and whatever way you could save cash flow, that was the goal. And I got up to about nine residential rental properties before I even employed a manager and they were in two different states. So it was yeah. uh, it was getting a little bit silly at some point where I lost control of the portfolio. But yeah, at the same time, I was then getting hit with a lot of maintenance bills. I had a vacancy um, some of the properties I bought were older as well. So all of a sudden that positive cash flow that I was thinking I was getting into was, was really not that good, especially when mm-hmm. the rates went up and the insurance bills were getting bigger and, you know, add all the property management costs in there. Um, the residential dream that I thought I was doing really well with was was almost a bit of a false economy, it felt. Um, there was growth. I was getting capital growth and that was kind of the only reason I was moving forward. But um, I could see very quickly I wasn't going to retire anytime soon if I stuck down this route. So I uh, 
randomly stumbled across this little supermarket and fish and chip shop after after reading it, you know, looking on the commercial websites for quite a while because I, I always saw the yields were really good um, but didn't know anything about the lending environment, didn't know anything about the asset classes and, and yeah, that, that was really where I wanted to self-educate myself. So spent a huge amount of time talking to leasing managers on the ground, talking to, you know, people that I thought would know stuff about commercial property, like friends of friends, parents, friends, all that kind of stuff, mortgage brokers. No one knew anything about this asset class. It was it was really difficult, to be honest. So everyone just said, don't buy it. It's risky. It's, you know, there's no capital growth. You get really long vacancies. All the, all the myths that you hear, um, I was just smashed by them. And, but I was at the point with, with my own portfolio, I just had the confidence and trusted the numbers. I thought, well, you know, even though everyone's saying don't do it, there's a reason some of the richest people in the world all own big shopping centres and buildings and stuff like that. This, Like you said, we own it in our super. Like it is a good asset class. And just because someone hasn't dabbled in it doesn't mean, you know, it's it's a poor investment because they've recommended not to go into it. So you said you had nine residential properties. How long ago was this and how old were you? So it's hard to think back at the exact time frames, but I, I remember I, like I quit my day job when I was 28. Um, I'm th- I've just turned 36 today or yesterday rather. Um, yeah. So I was 28 properties and that that's when I was uh, effectively retired for the job. So I would have had nine probably about four years earlier than that, three, four years earlier than that. So I was buying unit blocks at the time. That's that's mm-hmm. how I really got those numbers up to that into the 20s because I was buying single title assets, strider titling them, and generally refinancing them for a profit, not selling, but refinance. And, and that allowed to create deposits whilst maintaining a decent cash flow. But this was before I got into the commercial spectrum because I was looking at 10% gross yields in the unit block. So I bought a couple in Port Macquarie where I lived at the time. Um, they were very profitable and that, like I kind of got obsessed with unit blocks at that point. Uh, I went up into the Gold Coast and bought a, a little unit block in Labrador. I bought um, one down in Cooma as well did, near the ski slopes and did the same strategy. But all of a sudden, all these unit blocks had a lot of capital growth and the yields effectively went from 10% gross down to about 6% gross returns. And then you've got to pay all these high high rate bills and, and you know, insurance. So the, the returns were getting, um, well, I guess the, the yield was not catching up to the growth. So, you know, the rental growth rather was not happening quick enough. So all of a sudden to find a good unit block deal, they weren't existing because the market absorbed them because the demand, everyone was onto the same kind of exciting thing I thought I was onto. And, um, Prices went up and people knew the value of them. And this was around 2014 to 15 and 16, these types of periods. And, uh, yeah, that's that's where I, I kind of bought my last unit block. And I didn't want to go back into the four-bedroom house model because uh, I've been there, done that. And that's where I started looking at commercial uh, from around that period. So I bought my first commercial in 2015 from memory and that was a Perth asset. Awesome. So, Scott, great story. Thanks for sharing that with us. Um, when we say commercial, there's different offshoots of commercial, isn't there? We've got industrial, retail, warehouse, office, um, medical. Like, Can you just, for, for the average punter out there listening um, that wants to understand what is commercial, can you just break those down for a minute? Yeah, so commercial property is anywhere you do business in. There's a lot of variations of that. Um, you mentioned the main ones, office, retail, industrial. They all perform differently at different times. They have different growth rates, different perceived yields, um, different risk factors as well. There's also specialty classes, so that's your fuel stations, childcares, uh, medical facilities. Um, you can go further into like agriculture and storage and stuff like that as well. So uh, it, it's pretty all-encompassing. It's just not houses where you live in. So they are generally higher value assets, but they can also be the cheapest. For example. I'd consider a car park uh, a commercial property. You know, if you can lease it out to a business or, you know, an office, you, you know, that might be a 30, 40 grand investment. Um, but obviously commercial property can go all the way up into your Pacific, you know, they sold Pacific Fair in the Gold Coast the other year and it's billions of dollars, this type of stuff it can mm. go into. So they have different lending rules and this was the game changer for me, which would probably go into a bit later, but mm. 
when I ran out of steam with the banks with lending, because you know once once I got over twenty odd properties, um, and I was literally just on a I had a decent income, but I, it was a manager engineer type wage scenario, so it wasn't you know I wasn't a CEO getting me into dollars, but I, I ran out of my lending ability. But commercial, it had a different rule, and this is called lease stock loans. So it meant you could lend on the lease of the property. So it, it was a as long as you had the deposit, it was an entirely different style of lending. So they didn't look at the rest of my portfolio. They looked at it as a standalone deal. It's like buying a new super. It's sort of like a silo deal. And uh, I know this, you know, we've helped thousands of clients since into this type of stuff. And it, it's really good if you're a tradie who hasn't, um, you know, shown really good financial records, but you might have a lot of cash, you know, and all of a sudden you can leverage that if you're buying a good commercial investment. So the lending style helped me get into this stuff. And, you know, we've spent since bought many, many uh, commercial properties. Like we've got over 54 tenants currently, and that's around 65 million in current holdings. And um, I would have never got to that number through residential. Like I, I, I was finished at about 12 million from memory. And then that's where I had to go into a different asset class. So, yeah, so you've got more money than God, so congratulations. Um, <laughs> what's your relationship with um, lending and at what point will you start to deleverage and just cash flow properties 100% if at all? Yeah, so I generally finance everything I can, but I'm, I'm more cons- like I'll go a 60% LVR. That's sort of the, yep. the magic number. If you look at what a good fund manager who has billions of dollars under management do, they will generally run at 50, 55% debt. That's kind of their number. So debt will amplify the returns. If you don't use any debt, you're missing out. So it's not a risky scenario if you know what you're doing. And remember the cash flow from these assets would normally cover the interest twice over as well. So it's a good good scenario to lend. And, and it means you can spread your risk around. Like instead of buying one asset, you lend and buy two or buy a bigger, better quality one, longer lease. So yeah, I, I'm a big believer you need debt to maximize the returns. And anyone who's investing in property, they will, will generally always want to maximize returns. Yeah. Wow. And it's, yeah, it's a combination of cash flow and capital growth, isn't it? It's a really good balance of both depending on, uh, what your financial situation is in, in, in your current life. But I suppose I've always surmised commercial, and I'm interested to get your thoughts, with the pros and cons. I suppose higher deposits to get in, higher yields when we are in, uh, as in higher cash flow, uh, longer consistent tenancy, or, or not consistent, but longer tenancy terms as opposed to resi. Tenants get to improve the dwelling, whereas in, in resi, tenants can uh, not improve it and actually wreck it if they want, uh, and larger vacancies. Would that be fair to say? Yep, yep, you've summarised it perfectly. Um, and there are a couple of sort of like little asterisks. So one is like the, when you talk about larger vacancies, you get it more up front and in one go. So the average tenure uh, that we, we see with our clients is generally a commercial tenant we're involved in stays on average for about nine years. And that's kind of like a... They've got a three-year prop um, lease and there's two three-year options, so they generally stay for you know three terms of that lease, or they might have a a five by five-year lease, but it sort of averages around just under ten years. So your vacancy, it's not going to be filled within the week, but residential, you might be finding a new tenant every year or every two years, and those weeks, especially when you put the the letting up fees, you know, all of a sudden you you got a four-week kind of cost, and if you're getting that. 10 times over 10 years, that's 40 weeks of total vacancy. And commercial, you might have one vacancy, but it's three months. So you can sort of see when you put it in perspective over the long term, the vacancies are very similar. And if you buy good quality commercial, uh, you can often have tenants for 20 plus years as well. So it's just depending on if you get it right or not. So as as part of your uh, buyer's agent services for clients who want to get into commercial, what type of framework do you look at? Is it We'll only look at a property if there is a tenant in there on lease or if the planets do align and it's empty, we can go and steal that property. Like what type of broad guidelines do you look at and do you only buy, you know, do they in commercial, do they go like A grade property and B grade, like all that stuff? Yeah. And maybe you can explain that as well. Yeah. Yeah. So what we look for is it's all about quality with commercial. So even if you go buy like 
in a retail area. You want the corner block, you know, where it's got the best exposure. You don't want the little one down the back alley just because it's cheaper. So commercials, it's all out quality and it doesn't mean you've got to spend much money. Uh, it's all to do with the size of the property, like the square meter rates. So bigger properties cost more than smaller ones, but uh, a cheap property could be good quality as well. So we will 99% of the time buy it with a tenant in place. If there's no tenant, we want to know that it'll get filled almost before settlement, like really quickly. So relatability is a, a big key factor because, you know, we're lucky enough to have a lot of transactions and we're, you know, we're regularly buying in the same market. So we've got a live feed on the market. We know which tenants are looking around and how long the last one took to fill. Um, but yeah, you can actually negotiate things as part of the sale. Like um, I know one I bought, I actually negotiated five-year rental guarantees over it. And it's just because the guy need it was right in the middle of COVID and he just, you know, was going to sell at any cost. And I needed that rental guarantee to satisfy the bank because um, it was a couple, it was a multi-tenant investment. There was a couple of vacancies. And uh, yeah, you can get creative with all this stuff, but you want to know there'll be another tenant. Yeah. And quality, you just got to, you know, you buy for the building and the location. You don't, don't just buy because there's a pretty tenant in there. It's It's about the building and will another tenant want to replace them? Let's go back to, to COVID, Scott. The media painted a pretty gloomy uh, picture of commercial property through that time in, in CBD locations. Um, how did we navigate through that period from, I suppose, from a business point of view, but also individuals um, looking for stock through that time in the commercial space? Yes, good question. So quick summary with COVID, the office market was hit the hardest. So vacancy rates across the board roughly doubled. Um, so they were into the double-digit vacancy rates and they've clawed about half of that back as well. So there is a recovery going on slowly. And interestingly, the asset values grew in that time because these the big fund managers that own these $100 million towers did not just go fire, sell the asset. They take a long-term picture. Most of the tenants were paying throughout these periods because they're big corporations leasing whole floors out and stuff like that. But um it, this will have an effect of slower capital growth moving forward. Because of that vacancy rate, there's less ability for future landlords to push prices up on rent. Now, this was the opposite to the industrial world because COVID supercharged industrial properties. Everyone needed the logistics, storage capabilities. You, you know, you're buying more overseas. The supply chains were unpredictable. So when you order more, you got to you got to store more for longer periods of time. Like basically, the need for space under a big tin roof was more than ever and compounding the stress for tenants in the industrial space is the fact it costs so much more to build industrial properties so costs to build are up 50 percent since covid so that means developers need to sell the asset for 50 percent more uh, just to break even so they're not building as much as they should and that's kind of creating this um well as according to cbre the current vacancy rates for industrial properties is 0.8 percent and it's falling so that makes it the tightest uh, industrial market in the developed world and the result of that is we're seeing the fastest uh, rental growth rates we've ever seen so you know some clients are getting 20 percent growth rates in, in just just because their tenants have got nowhere to go uh, a lot of big sheds have overflown into even bigger sheds and it's um it's almost the opposite to office and retail it's a little bit in between these two stories because retail you've got the essential retail which is you know, your, your chemist types, the supermarkets, um, they, they've done quite well. Um, there's obviously still a, it's a moving target post-COVID, but um, some small retail, especially CBD-located retailers, did struggle in those periods. But the strength in the suburban areas picked up because more people are moving and working from home. So mm. mixed bag. A lot of your clients, well, let's rewind you know, what is the profile of a client that you work with? Like, do you work with a lot of first time investors? So someone who might already have a house that they live in, they might have some equity or some savings and they want to buy some investment property, but they're of the view that they would rather buy a commercial uh, for whatever reasons. Like, how do you walk a first time commercial person down the road if you're working with them? We really work with almost the entire spectrum. So I've got clients in their 80s all the way down into probably mid-20s is, is where they start looking at, at this stuff. So they're generally someone who may at least have one or two other residential properties and they're looking to kind of 
supercharge their returns or, you know, they're, uh, they're a business owner who's got a fair bit of capital and they're just going straight into that kind of trophy type asset. So we, we do a lot of deals, you know, over 10 million and then as cheap as probably 500 grand. Um, mm. And yeah, average client is, is someone who's really thinking about their retirement. And that's why that we've created that book. It's a really basic book just to kind of give the ins and outs of commercial, the numbers around it, what are the risks. And it's, um, yeah, it's just a basic start just to compare, you know, the well-trodden residential path to, to commercial. And um, we're finding more people shifting to commercial than ever, ever before. Interest rate rises have helped that. Like a lot of businesses are getting slower. We're actually getting busier because people are trying to fix a cash flow problem. Mm. And when their interest rate has doubled since 12 months ago, you know, you can't be uh, sitting on 10 negatively geared properties anymore. Yeah. So John always talks about, you know, the biggest mistake, well, one of the mistakes when people buy resi for the first time, you know, they buy in the street down the road and it might be the wrong market, the wrong property. And it's only because they're anchored in this, oh, I live in this suburb, so it must be good. Like what's probably if someone went out on their own without, you know, the help of someone seasoned in the commercial property space, what are some of the big errors that someone might make when buying their first commercial property? Yeah, it's a good question because there is more risk. If you get commercial wrong, you get punished more. And the main reason is you probably don't even know the mistakes you're making. Like if you go by in a really dodgy part of town or in a flood zone, like common sense can kind of get you through those moments as a residential investor. Commercial, you really got to understand the trends of businesses. You got to understand like what, what a business is looking for. So a lot of my clients already have businesses themselves and they've probably even been a tenant renting a premises. So they kind of get a commercial lease. They understand mm. that what a fixed increase is or a CPI increase on the lease or, you know, a make good provision or, you know, what happens if uh, there's a demolition clause in the lease. Like these are kind of more complicated topics that, uh, you know, the first time 25-year-old buyer won't really come into, you know, and mm. people like buying where they live because it's that familiar thing and it does de-risk it to a degree. Um, you still should seek professional advice, I think, if if you're investing in any asset class, but mm. um, but you're not going to get punished as hard in residential because of that almost common sense factor because that doesn't work as well in commercial. Like if you buy the wrong property, like I'll use that, back of the alley type retail premises like imagine you're in a really good part of town and you bought where there's just no foot traffic and you're buying that side unseen and all of a sudden that tenant goes you know you may not feel that tenant for years you know because mm. it's just a dud location so it's those little tiny um things that kind of come into it like things like warehousing is lower risk because it's just a space as long as the roof's high enough to get a container in you can kind of uh I don't know, some people may not think about that even. Like, so you've got to just be more careful. And um, like I said, you will get punished harder, but the returns are higher to offset this. So when you get it right, I believe you do make more money out of this um, yeah. for various reasons. But yeah, it's you've got to be careful. With, you know, because you are all over the commercial um, scene, and it probably is a very small world for commercial people like yourself, like Australia's not that big and, you know, you'd probably know most of the major commercial centres that are for sale, right? Like, have you ever kind of built a syndicate with a heap of clients? Like, oh, there's this five mil opportunity. We just need three people, five people, whatever to go and grab it. Yeah, we have set a few syndicates up where we, um, it's you got to do it sort of under a family and friends setup. So, you know, 20 or less people. Because if you do outside of that, you're in the AFSL territory and, and that just costs too much money. It diminishes the returns for the investors. There's a lot of negatives with syndication, like mostly to people's plans change. Like, you know, someone like, I know one of the ones I was involved in, one of the major shareholders uh, moved to Spain during COVID and thought, you know, I want my money out. So it was almost like a quick fire sale just to please one of them, you know, and you can push back and delay, but it's, I just always like direct investing and there are other benefits. You'll get more leverage. When you go into a syndication, you're generally 50% loans or less as well. So it is trickier. And then you just got to get all, like from a legal point of view, it's a lot more complicated and there's just too many decision makers in one pie, but that's the fund managers, the world. And it's, it's a massive industry. They're as big as banks, some of these companies and, there's plenty of opportunities to put your money into a syndicate. But yeah, there are negatives to it, of course. So Scott, for anyone listening out there that's getting 
half uh, or fully excited by commercial stuff. You mentioned the lower end of the of the puzzle is probably around that half a mil, 500k. Can we break it down for listeners to say, well, okay, this is we, we need to lend at 70%. Um, these are our costs going in and these are sort of the rates that we would uh, we would have right now on our loan and, and uh, it's hard to say expected yields, but g- give us maybe an example of what we'd see out there at the minute at 500k. Yeah, so generally the 500k deals we do are a small retail shop, like it might be a little, um, it could be a hairdresser, or you might get a small dentist, um, physiotherapist, that type of stuff. Um, but the majority of deals are probably warehouses. So those kind of two 100 to 300 square meter high roller door type ones, you know, where you see they could be inner city, middle ring suburbs, like quite built out suburbs. And I really like these types of deals because there's just a massive undersupply of them. People can store anything from classic cars into them to a, their, you know, electrician business, um, breweries. Like you can sort of just honestly think for the next hour and just come up with hundreds of different uses for them. Is that where you've got your boat, Glenn? Um, <laughs> <laughs> we won't talk about my uh, my own personal situation, but yes, I um, I do yeah. store my boat in a factory bay. Okay, carry on, Scott. <laughs> yeah, so there, there's just so many uses for them, and like that's um, that's why I like them for a first time type investment because if you lose your tenant, you're not buying it for the tenant; you're buying it for the location and the storage ability, and uh, it's a growth market. Mm. And lending, like obviously. In- Nine interest rate rises in, from the Reserve Bank has been quite nasty for a lot of people. Um, where do we see interest rates in the commercial space? Have we seen those rates always get passed on by the lenders? Can we be strategic around that in, in these times? And you talked about lease stock loans. Like, does that affect the rates per se? Yeah, and it, it's a different level. So obviously in the sort of sub $3 million loan territory, you're, you're more on off-the-shelf type products. But when you go over that, you are dealing with it's. You know, I like to think of it. It's almost like old school banking. Very relationship applicant type based decisions are made, and they will pull strings for you. They'll charge you no establishment fees, and you know stuff like that can happen. And I was actually talking to a, a broker who's a client uh, today, actually, and he was he was in the residential department for one of the majors, and he was shocked at the rates with commercial because he was buying a decent-sized um, commercial property, but they were lower rates than residential, which I hadn't had a fact-check for about six months. So I was surprised to, to hear that. And it makes sense because there's a lot of um, market share attempts um, for the big banks and, and second-tier and third-tier banks to get into commercial because it's quite a low LVR world, you know, estimated around 30% debt, the commercial. So there's there's very little debt out there and um, yeah, it's, it's viewed as a bit of a, uh, I guess, a good option for a bank for their risk profile at the moment. So they are fighting for business and you can negotiate a pretty good deal relatively. It's obviously nowhere near as good as it was 12 months ago, but not, you know, you're know, you looking at sort of mid 5% when I think Resi's probably around 6 at the moment. Mm. We'll take a quick break and then when we get back, we're going to drill down on a scenario and we'll be back right after this. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Radio. So John talked before about, you know, just getting started. If we assume that there was a shop factory bay, so a lot of our listeners might have, I think half of our listeners in the last survey have a mortgage. So 50% of our audience have a mortgage. There is a want to invest for the future and it might be hard for a listener to to walk into a $3 million deal tomorrow, which I would say, yep, that's pretty normal to not be able to go and buy a $3 million commercial property tomorrow. But if there was something around that $500,000 as a really loose scenario and given you're not a mortgage broker or um, but you're in that world, you know, if we needed a 30% deposit, or 150 grand, if someone had 150 grand usable equity, could their mortgage broker set up a separate loan against the house, 150 grand, and then get external funding for that commercial property? Or in the commercial world, do they care that, you know, where that money's come from or do they look under the hood too much? I don't know if I'm being um, clear, but you get what I'm saying? Yeah. So, vibe me. Yeah, I'm, I'm feeling it, I think. Yeah. <laughs> so, do you need cash, basically? Do I need cash? <laughs> yeah. So, look, you've got to get your loan out of the resi property first. So, you've got, if you've got lazy equity sitting in an owner-occupier house, you've got to re- be able to refinance that first. You can't use the income from the commercial property prior to that. So, there's a bit of an order situation. If you've got the cash, the bank doesn't care where that cash came from. They just can see it's going to be used for the eventual loan on the commercial property. So, Generally, people have the ability to refinance out their deposit. So let's use that 500 example. You know, you might need 30% of that 500 grand. So 150 grand can come out. So as long as you can lend 150 grand in your residential space and then get that in an offset account or just a bank account, then Mm. the rest can be done by the uh, lease stock loan. Sweet. So they're not really going to look overall at your overall LVR, they just want to make sure the commercial property stands up on its own. Yeah, that's my read on it. No, every bank will have slightly different variations, but yeah, a lease stock loan should silo the deal mm. as, as is. And they don't need to know how many kids you've got and all that kind of stuff. Which is really interesting, isn't it? Because in the resi space, we, we might get our 150 out, we might have a pre-approval for another 400 per se, and then we can get pre-approval for that and then, yeah, the contract's the contract. As long as the val stacks up, you go and buy that property for four or five hundred. But it's almost reverse engineering the process, which takes a massive step out of that lending process when you're buying commercial. Yeah, that's right, and that's why I initially turned to it because I I knew my current portfolio wasn't wasn't really enough to, you know, it wasn't. I, I had to keep working, so there was there was no option for me to to sort of stop. But the banks with the lending rules kind of um, on the residential side of things just tapped me out. And, yeah, when I first got onto this with my broker, I, I thought it was almost too good to be true. Mm. Yeah, I'm, you know, selfishly the reason I wanted you on the podcast because I'm actually interested in um, in trying to get some commercial myself. And the problem I've had, I put my name down for uh, an off-the-plan factory bay because what I wanted to do was uh, buy the factory bay and put my studio in there and so I can go to work, quote unquote. Um, but I don't know what happened. I think it's probably around the building costs. They, you know, I put my expression in, like, yep, all good. Went silent for a few months, didn't even get to contract and the developer went stuff it too much. Like they just stopped the project. And I think what they'd priced and what they were selling it for probably doubled, as you said, with the building equipment and, and particularly where I am around Newcastle, I've been looking at a suburb called Bennett's Green for, you know, other types of factory bays and whatnot. But you're right, like there's just nothing that comes up. So that leads into the next question. In buyer's advocate world, like there's got to be a market that isn't on real commercial. Yeah, that's right. And it's, uh, you know, you're probably familiar with residential buyer's agents saying off market a lot. Um mm-hmm when they're not really off market, they might be sort of flogged around 10 different agents or it's just a pre It's a black book somewhere. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But commercial, it is a genuine massive off market uh, type industry. Mm. One of the main reasons is a lot of owners uh, quite private 
wealthy people. They don't want to spook tenants. They they know their market is not a mass marketing type um, product. Like, you know, you go to people who are looking in that market and stuff like that, probably similar to like a development site. Imagine you're, you've been building townhouses for 30 years. You're going to get access to off-market deals because people know you're the guy that buys townhouse sites. So it's sort of a similar vein to what developers do and they don't often sell a good development site online because mm-hmm. um, the price is awkward or it's, again, it's not a mass marketing type. They won't benefit from it. Um, compared to a four-bedroom house in a nice suburb of Newcastle, you know, yeah, you've got to show the masses that. So, yeah, off-market is is how you get access to a lot of this stuff. It's what we do seventy percent of the time. Seventy percent of our volume is done off-market. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And without giving accountants advice or anything else, uh, would majority of your clients buy in their personal name, or is like is a is a super fund really common for people? Is it is a company? Is a trust? How is how is it usually structured? So most people don't buy in their personal name. They're buying in some type of uh, discretionary trust, family unit trust, and one of the main benefits of that is you can distribute your income to non-working people in the family. You know, I'm not super up to date with the rules, but yeah, I think you you can enjoy the the lowest tax threshold over multiple family members. So if you've got a lot of income to delegate, then it makes sense in a trust. Mm. Have more kids. Yeah, <laughs> and make sure they're over 18 as quick as possible. Mm. But there's a, yeah, there, there's that. And then super funds are very common. It's almost, I actually don't know how people justify buying a house in a super fund because the interest rates are so high. Like you're just buying into a negative cash flow situation. You've got to keep paying it just to keep the, the mortgage from defaulting, um, but commercial, you buy it and the thing will pay itself off mm. um, generally in about 12, 13, 14 years. That's sort of how quick it'll pay itself off because that rent is ever increasing. You're going in with generally 70% debt, 65% debt. Mind you, you can do 80% loans in commercial. Um, but, yeah, that, that's sort of the payback period um, and that in- accumulation of rent over time, it really makes a big difference, especially when you get sort of 10 years out. Yeah, wow. So in commercial land, you know, when I last looked at it as an investment class, you know, 10 to 12% yield wouldn't be a crazy amount, generally speaking. So yields generally, they vary massively in in the country. So the lowest yields I've seen are kind of like those inner Melbourne townhouse shop front type things. I've seen them sell at 1% net yields. Like they're not buying it for cash flow. I don't know how they justify those yields, but that's one of the things I shake my head in, at the industry, how mm. they justify that. But um, they can get into the you know, 10, 12, 15% yields. Um, doesn't mean it's a good investment if the yield's that high because generally the higher the yield, the more risk it is. So if you go out into the edge of the desert where there's no buildings and there's a little corner store out there, you would need a massive yield to just justify that because it's not going to get any growth the risk of that tenant leaving and filling it, it will be very high. So you don't want to buy that on a, mm. a standard yield. You need something crazy. You may not even get the bank loan for something that's too regional too. So I generally find the best deals, dollar for dollar or pound for pound, are somewhere between a 6 and a 7% net yield. That's where you're going to get the best combination of growth, low risk with re-letability, and even just good lending conditions. So it'd be capital city or major regional centre, but like flood-free, best street in the town or, 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 you know, suburb. And and that's where, the you know, you can make the best money. But a good 8% is uh, not out of the question. But, yeah, you don't just go all out yield. And that's sort of one of the mistakes that a novice investor might make. They'll just chase yield and let that dictate their decisions. But you'll make as much money, if not more, through growth in commercial. And that's – you never forget growth. So that – it's same with residential. You don't just go buy a high-yielding house just because you think you're going to make a little bit extra hundred bucks a week on the cash flow. So is that like the inverse relationship and, you know, the old folklore wives tale thing like oh, factory bays never go up in value or commercial never goes up in value, like the folklore of property always goes up. Investment, like where John and I have had clients over the years where residential properties has gone sideways or decreased. Uh, so is that just kind of a bit of a working class myth for want of a better word? It's the greatest myth of commercial real estate without a doubt. Like mm. how could you think that commercial property doesn't grow fast when you, you know, go think of any local area where you are and even just a service station, you know, it might be sitting on 2,000 square metres in a 
average part of town and, and it's selling for four or five million dollars. It wasn't four or five million dollars 20 years ago. Mm. You know, everything, land values still grow. Uh, it's it's a supply-demand ratio like everything can, you know, it's the basic economics rule. Um, when there's more demand than the supply of that asset, it will go up over time. And it's still fueled by currency and inflation just the you know the long-term devaluing the currency directly impacts any asset class you can leverage in and commercial is no different mm. i've had better capital growth rates out of my commercial property uh, by a long shot compared to residential like i i bought into brisbane and it was flat for three or four years and it exploded for two years and then you know at the same time i had commercial properties which uh probably were 30 percent up on value when resi was flat so it all has different drivers so, Scott, I'm going to put my cards on the table and I want you to as well. The worst possible investment, I think, from a resi point of view is a studio apartment, less than 50 squares, that the banks don't like and it's part of a complex of two or 300 in a CBD area. What's yours in commercial? What's your equivalent to that in commercial world? Yeah, it's a good question and it's going to be very similar because it's all about, so the reason you won't like a studio is there's a few reasons. You won't be able to get the bank loans you want. There's obviously, it doesn't have the drive from owner-occupiers pushing it. It's forever going to be that kind of, you know, a hard asset to sell. And and same with like probably a high-rise office space. You know, if you're going right up into a big aging tower where you can supply this stuff forever, uh, you're just not going to get the same result. Um, I would not want to be involved in that, like especially when a building gets 50 years old, you know, it may get condemned or you might need to repurpose it so there'll be a massive strata blowout cost. So strata of those types of buildings will always hurt your returns. And, yeah, but probably properties that are in towns, less than 10,000 people where, you know, you can't get a bank loan, but, um, you know, you might have a really good, there's always variations. It's hard to generalize with town sizes and stuff. But, but yeah, the, the high rise is probably a, what I'd say just because there's too many headwinds for it. So you started off, you mentioned Port Macquarie and then I think Gold Coast maybe as your entry into commercial. Where, where do you focus your energies? Like we look around the country and we look at patterns and research, historical values and where we think is undervalued and overvalued and everything else. Do you – do the same? Uh, do you look on a on a national level or do you just own one patch and be really good at it? Uh, we, we sort of break it to asset classes. So we, we are experts in industrial, um, neighbourhood shopping centres for sort of our clients who have got slightly larger budgets. Um, but we do look at it nationally and, and it actually gives us a massive advantage because we can see where there's value. So, for example, there's certain parts areas where like industrial properties are generally a fairly vanilla type standard product so if you can see the square meter rate is significantly lower in a different area for no reason on a rental basis you know there's upside in that rent which might take three or four or five years to flow through the people will see the value and it's so easy i think it's easier than residential because the numbers are just so black and white like you know if if you're looking in brisbane and the um you know, the rents per square metre for 1,000 square metre sheds are 150 and then you go 10Ks up the road and they're 100, there's value there, you know. And, and you think, why is it so much cheaper? Is it because they've got no highway access or is it just a, you know, a culture thing in that market? Um, like you can really pick apart that because most people are local experts in in uh, commercial property, but we, you know, because we're buying in all the different capital cities, you can see where there's value and you can do this in residential to a degree as well. You might say Perth is better value right now than Brisbane and five years time, it might flip around. So like you can play that game a little bit. Um, but at the end of the day, you're buying for a 20 year period. And um, I just want to make sure the day one yields good. It's got to have rental growth. Upside in the deals is important. Yeah. And just don't buy the wrong asset class because that's where you could get it wrong. So I'm not going to be buying large amounts of uh, fuel stations at the moment because in 10 years time you may not need every second one of them i don't Mm. know with your own we'll call it a high net worth portfolio you know if you had a someone walk in the door with i don't know 40 million cash and wanted to go to town with commercial would that person often get legal advice and just this is just anecdotal evidence where we'll put up to five or 10 million in a unit trust and segregate assets? Or have you seen, you know, the one discretionary family trust holding all the wealth 
What type of um, structures have you seen for asset ownership? Yeah, so we deal with a few sort of family office types and they're, they're often overseas, you know, South Africans to Singaporeans and that type of stuff. And they've generally got a unit trust and, you know, they can have custodian Australian companies that kind of manage their property. So it, it gets very complicated and I'm not completely privy to their structures. But, yeah, generally there is a, uh, I guess, a unit trust that holds the investment. And, yeah, they, they will buy the one asset in it and create a new structure for each asset. Yeah. And yeah. it kind of silos the risk into that. Yeah. And like, so John has a, um, a buyer's advocacy agent service for Resi, like all around Australia, and he's helped, you know, lots of listeners. You know, John will charge a, a flat fee for the, the BA service. In the commercial world, what type of fee structure for the buyer's advocacy is common practice out there? Is it percentage or flat fee? So it's a flat fee. Oh, sorry, it's a flat fee under a certain price point, and then as you get into the higher ones, it's a percentage. So yeah. it works quite similar to what a sales agent would do. So um, you know, a fee should range from one point five to two point five percent generally, yeah. um, and that's with that you've got to do all the due diligence. So we, for our clients, we'll do a big due diligence report. So it's there's a lot involved. Like we literally have to call the tenants up. You know, you've got to go through the legalities of the leases. We're going to we're going to basically renegotiate things four times over because there's you know you've got to verify the income, and that, that that might sound quite easy, but you actually got to go like imagine you're buying a shopping center and there's 16 tenants. You've got to go through all of them. Well, my team would, and they'll go and check if the CPI increases were correctly implemented two years ago. So we actually create like three columns, like of and then present the numbers in three columns. One is what the agent presented. So let's say the net income's 500 grand per annum. The next one is what is legally enforceable because the leases might say, oh, they've missed a few increases and they're, they're incorrectly charging an outgoing there. So you've got to make sure like who pays land tax, who pays rental management. Mm. The agent may not understand it at the time of sale. Um, so I'm not saying that they, they miss things deliberately, but they always miss things. And, so, and then the final column is what the actual set of numbers is based on invoices paid. And they're all going to be three different numbers. So our job would be then to renegotiate on the worst case of those numbers and bring that back on the sale price so you can pull the price down because we want to get that yield back up at the yeah. lower at lower rental. So it's kind of, it's very fiddly, I guess. It's not rocket science, but it's just time consuming and you need all the paperwork. Well, it's just due diligence, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And I, for everyone listening, I did put a post up in the Facebook group. We have covered a heap of the questions, but there's one here from Nathan MYC, Nathan Mike or whatever. Um, you know, when John talks resi, he talks about um, like capital improvements and, you know, you might do a bathroom up or whatever and all that stuff. Are there any examples of value adding in commercial property? Yeah, there's... Everything you do in Resi is the same with commercial, but there's a few different levers you can pull. So the easiest way to add value, I think, is buying a property which is renting slightly below market value. And all you've got to do is negotiate that lease up, generally at the end of the lease. Um, I just do everything by the numbers, as I mentioned, so I, I won't take too much emotion out of it. I'll literally just go and show what all the neighbours are per square metre renting for and then put it in front of them. And it's pretty hard to contest that. And they'll always contest it. But you've got to then say, look, this is the market rent. Your lease states there's a market review applicable at the end of the lease. So you can then just push the rent up. If you push the rent up by 10%, you've just created 10% equity. It's directly related to the price. So if you're lucky enough to find an asset that's 20% under rented and push the rent up 20%, not only does your cash flow get 20% better, but your capital value directly changes and you can get a value out and they have to recognize it, assume in the cap rate of the market's the same. Yeah. And I think we've touched on a very important thing here. Like in the commercial property world, everything has got to do with the income that it generates. Yeah. And also the perceived risk. So another value add strategy is just lengthening the lease. So imagine you're an investor and you see two properties next to each other. One's got a one-year lease and one's got a five-year lease. You'll pay more for the five-year lease. So there's there's a bit of a proceed value. Another one, this is something we've done for a few clients over the years. We'll, we'll buy a, a shopping centre. It might be a little bit run down, so you spend money polishing it up. 
you know, but then we attract more medical type t- tenants. So you might get the news agency out and re- replace it with a physiotherapist or a, if you're lucky enough, a dentist who spends a lot of money on a fit out. If you then show that to a valuer or, or an investor on the market, they're going to look at that tenancy mix as higher quality and they're going to pay more for the same rental amount. So even if the rent doesn't increase, the quality of tenants has increased. So you'll pay more for it. Mm, yeah. Look, lots there. We might wrap it up. Were there any uh, final questions, John, that you had? No, I think it's it's uh, it's really consolidated from my end to just be open to all ideas and and educate yourself in in all areas of investing. And and I think I've always looked at commercial as extremely attractive. Um, but I'll be honest, I've always thought, yep, it's for for the business owner that wants to buy their own premise. To, to then rent it back to themselves, et cetera, and, and then for the high cash amount client. Uh, what you've told us today, Scott, is that that's not entirely the case um, and I've got to go away and, and uh, give myself a, a knock across the head as well. So I think continue to educate ourselves is the, is the key message here and, uh, and find out if it's for you or not. Yeah, absolutely. I, I've got one last question you know, if there is a building that has been vacant for some time and it is for sale, that's probably when you're going to potentially get a deal maybe because, you know, as much as the property price is based on the rent, well, if there's no tenant, there's intrinsic value, land, and it's not worth nothing. So what are some strategies if you do see some um, properties that don't have any tenants and it, it has some macro signs that it's a good area and, and whatnot? It's a good question and then a lot of people will buy vacant because you can often get it at a slight discount. It might be 5 or 10% discount, but then you've got to remember lending will be difficult. Mm-hmm. You also need, if you're trying to find a tenant, you might have to deal with a two or three or four-month vacancy as well and all of a sudden that just eats into that discount you've just got plus the tougher lending plus it's, it's harder than you think to buy vacant, especially because it feels bad. You know, you don't, a lot of people aren't comfortable with that scenario, no matter how busy, uh, you know, how many properties you've bought. But, uh, you know, I like, there's always properties with tenants in it for sale. So mm. if you're buying it as an owner occupier, go for it because you will get a slightly better price. But remember, a vacant property will attract a GST on the price as well. Yeah. So just talk about the going concern for those who might not be aware. So a going concern sale means there's a business at play in it. So it's, you don't need to pay GST on the price. And when you buy vacant, the tax department assumes you're buying it for your business. So you'll have to claim your GST back. So you can claim it. Um, but but you've got to cash flow it. Yeah. yeah, it's 10% cash gone out the front. And that's pretty sizable, you know, that, and then you, you may not get it back for four or five months as well. So there's a, there's a lot more to deal with vacant and, yeah, it's that's why most people go down the, the tenanted path. And I've got one last question. I just keep thinking of cool questions. If, for example, there was a place for sale and there was a tenant in there and through the course of your DD they had a two-and-a-half-year lease, can you ever, like, approach the tenant on the sly and say, hey, um, you know, if I buy this or can you lock in, sorry, I'm trying to get at, can you somehow get it? So we'll buy this off you, get the tenant to get a, a five or 10 year lease happening and be part of that conversation. Yes. And or, part is, of are, are you shooting yourself in the foot because then you're adding value? And Yeah. And part of our due diligence is we always talk to the tenant. So you can have this chat on yeah, the cool. side and you don't generally want to action it until you own the property as well, especially if you're under a due diligence clause where, you know, the, the deal might still crash. Uh, you still want that control. And, um, yeah, those chats with the tenants, uh, they do happen a lot, uh, you know, because a tenant may want the security as well. And mm. um, you don't need to show your cards too much because if they see you desperately trying to negotiate a lease, a smart tenant will go, well, what am I getting out of it? I, I want some free rent or a reduced rent. It's yeah. a very... It's it's a complex negotiation. It's just a classic business negotiation. You just yeah. got to play your cards pretty close to your chest. I actually like letting tenants expire and then coming that day with a new lease because they got no time to shop around or plan. And mm. uh, but a lot of people would rather the security three months out and sign it earlier. 
Yeah, and I think it's just that dance of making sure you're looking after people still, right, and not, you know, being that yep. evil landlord that you are, Scott. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you are the yeah. problem. What are yeah. you doing? <laughs> so, but uh, look, it's a good option, like for those who are interested to build wealth and have a moral objection to uh, buying a residential investment property. You just got to come up with the cash. Yeah, exactly. And I found um, there's a lot less hate on landlords in the commercial world. Resi get guys get a you know they they get targeted unfairly a lot. Like they are providing a rental service to the industry, but uh, you know they are media targets. But no one really cares anything about a commercial investor. They're just some some guy quietly in the background, and uh, businesses need their space. And yeah, it's 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 a very murky world, which there's not much publicity on it, and that's that's probably why I like it. It's, mm. it's a forgotten industry operating in the shadows, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> Just on that though, Scott, do you think that's because in a lot of cases uh, the tenants improving their own internal, uh, whereas with residential, the the tenants expecting the landlord to fix this, that, and everything else? Well, the tenants in commercial, yeah, they uh, they have to pay for all their outgoings, so they do all the maintenance. And remember, a lot of the tenants are large businesses with their own branding and reputation, so they need a clean showroom or a spotless, you know laboratory or whatever it is so it's it's kind of the pressures on the business not you as the landlord you just need to make sure the thing's insured and then they pay your insurance and finally if someone wanted to um engage your services might might be me might not uh does one talk and get some money organized first or pull the trigger with you and do it in tandem what's the kind of uh timeline for most of your clients it doesn't really matter what order. Like you'll need, like we, you can chat uh, to us at any time. Talking to your mortgage broker to get a bit of a blueprint from lending is very handy. Uh, so you, you know, you can work out rough budgets. Remember that mortgage brokers that do commercial lending and resi are generally different as well. Mm-hmm. So you might want to talk to a specialist commercial mortgage broker because um, there will be differences and different types of loan products out there and um yeah we're, in terms of finding a property with us it does vary depending on the budget you are like if you're an entry level buyer looking for a 500 grand property it can take months and months and months to find a property like sometimes over six months plus because there is a, a massive oversupply of buyers versus the assets and mm. remember we're buying good quality ones we're not just trying to buy anything available so that takes time but the higher the budget the shorter the wait period yeah and do you think it is a bad time to buy anything sub two at the moment? Look, I don't think the demand's going to loosen up. Like if interest rates start dropping next year or this year, whenever, there's just going to be more demand on it. Yeah. Um, so if anything, it's probably a better time while some people are going to get spooked by the current RBA meetings. Yeah, because once once it goes the other way, it's going to be a bigger problem in terms of the, the demand. So I, I think... Yeah, if you've got the ability to lend safely and you're stable in your job, like this is going to be a positively geared investment. So it's not like you're going backwards once you buy. Um, I don't. I, I see now is probably as good a time as any. Yeah, cool. All right, we will uh, leave it there. You can check out the book and it's probably the best um, place to start rethink property investing with Scott O'Neill and the podcast Inside Commercial Property. Check it out and uh, we might get you on again. Uh, in the near future and answer some more questions. It's been great. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, Glennie. Thanks, John. Appreciate your time. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits and pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. My Millennial Money supports a variety of charities and we encourage you to consider giving as part of your overall financial strategy. If you would like some giving options or if you're unsure about which charity you can support, head to mymillennial.money forward slash charities for more info. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289.
Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. That's the sound of another sale on Shopify. In store. Shopify POS is everything you need to sell in person. From payments to inventory, Shopify unites your sales into one commerce platform. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash retail 23. Shopify.com slash retail 23.